see you opening your Bibles, I hope, to 1 Thessalonians. This is our second sermon now in a uh, study from this book, and hopefully, God willing, uh, study through 2 Thessalonians when, when we get to that. I read the passage just a few minutes ago. I will be referring to it. You see your sermon outlined there and giving you lots uh, of, of scripture as uh, a support for the points that I will be making. But uh, again, I was gripped. Seems like I say that every Sunday. Uh, as I begin to look at the, the word that is before me for uh, coming and preaching and bringing you the word, feeding you the word, uh, I, I, just, I just, my heart's gripped on, on several different levels. And, and one of the things that I saw out of this, and if you were here this last week, we did a little bit of a backstory, a context that we will want to do um, that uh, will, will take us into the, the study of this book. Uh, but let me, let me begin on a, on a personal note. I, I was be beginning to look at the Apostle Paul and his, his incredible gratefulness for the church at Thessalonica. And, and it struck me that I am also grateful for you. Now, one of the things that I thought of when Paul said that he was grateful, and we'll get to the things that he talked about in a minute, look at the things that he didn't mention. He didn't mention their numbers. He didn't say he was grateful for the great buildings that they had built. And I'm not against those. Maybe they had a lot of people by that time. It wasn't long after he had founded the church. Maybe they had a great building. I doubt it, but maybe they did. And he didn't say he was grateful for all the great programs that they had going on. He mentioned some very specific things about heart issues. And, and that brought me to another thought. That I, I see this in the passage of Scripture that Paul might have originally thought of. Now, I say this for me personally, but I'm going to apply it to everybody in this room. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, whether you're young or old, you are what the Bible calls a minister. Okay, have you got that? That's a theme around here, and, and so you need to know that. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. So I speak as a fellow minister who has the job of being a pastor. And sometimes as ministers, I know this is true of me. I think it probably is true of you. Sometimes we get tired in the ministry, don't we? Hopefully we never get tired of the ministry. Sometimes we get discouraged. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, what is my ministry? Well, just look in concentric circles and you'll find that your first ministry is basically yourself and the relationships around you, perhaps your marriage or relationships. Maybe if you step out from that, it's your family. Maybe it's your work. All of those are our ministry places, ministry items. Maybe it's the culture in which you live. And yet, sometimes, listen, I'm not speaking just for me. Sometimes when you look at how you have invested your life in ministry, sometimes you might get discouraged because you're not sure how it's all turning out. I figure back 
I've been doing this a long time. And in my ministry of about 43 years, I have probably preached sermons and and taught Bible studies that would add up to about, listen to this, 5,000 sermons or Bible studies. I don't know how many more I've got in me. 500, 1,000, I don't know. I want to keep going until I can't. All right, whether it's in this position or someplace else, you understand that. But sometimes, you've got to hear my heart on this, sometimes I look at all that I have invested in that and I wonder if I've even made a difference at all. I'm not saying that so that you'll write me a note or feel sorry for, oh, Brother Marty's feeling bad and he's feeling... No, 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 no. It's none of that because you probably have felt the same way in whatever ministry it is that you've been called to. And I, again, that could be anything from family to relationships to your work to any other number of things. And, and you see Paul's gratefulness, and you've got to see this, it grew out of that kind of context. Do you know how I know that? Let's go back and do a little bit of the backstory. It's in Acts 16 and 17. I don't want you to turn there. We did it last week. I just want you to listen. But if you'll remember, Paul had already been rode hard and put up wet. Okay? Do you get my drift? He had already had some tough ministry in Philippi. And he comes over to, to Thessalonica, and he has three weeks, three weeks with these, these basically in the synagogue teaching. And apparently, I don't know how they came to, it doesn't say it, but if you go back to Acts 17 and it starts telling the story, maybe the Gentiles, these idol worshipers, were curious about these three guys that came to town, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and maybe they were listening outside the windows. I've heard that in times of great revival, those things have actually happened. Unbelievers come in and and they'll, they'll... step outside the window or they'll come in the foyer or whatever and they'll listen so maybe they just approach the synagogue but whatever happened it says not only Jews but many Gentiles Greeks came to faith in Christ and in three weeks this is incredible three weeks a significant church was planted and then a riot ensued And the believer said, Paul, you got to get out of here. And he wasn't finished with riots and problems and trouble and all the rest of that. He just went from the fi- frying pan into the fire, really. But he, he left town. And this, this got Paul three weeks, brand new believers. And you know, there are other places in Scripture where, where it talks about Paul constantly being in, in all kinds of situations. But it also says that he always had the church on his heart. So to get a context for his gratefulness, which is the first point, you have to go back, or maybe forward, let's say it like that, all the way over to chapter 3 and verse 5, and then we'll answer it with verse 6. It's not up on the screen. So, so here's Paul, and by this time he's gone through Berea, where it, it says they were more noble-minded. We're talking about the people who were out there. They didn't cause a riot in Berea, but he left and he went to Athens and he really had a challenging time then. And then he went to Corinth. And so from Corinth, we don't know exactly when Timothy rejoined him, but, 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 but Paul was so agonized over this little church at Thessalonica after three weeks, were they going to make it? Listen to what he said and you'll see why a, a lot of us feel like that. 
will we ever really make a difference? That's how Paul felt. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your face, Thessalonica, for fear that somehow, now he mentions one of the three elements of our battle, the tempter, who's the tempter? The devil. So we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil can all come and seek to wreck our lives. And so he was concerned. He was beyond concerned. He was beside himself for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you. And look at this, our labor had been in vain. And then in verse 6, he said, But Timothy came to us from you, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love. And so growing out of that, we go back to chapter 1, verse 2. Look at this, a grateful heart. Now, let's talk about us for just a minute. And, and, and attitudes of ministers, no matter what ministry you're in, if I'm in the pastorate, then I see that. But I also am a, am a dad. I'm also a husband. I'm also a grandfather. So I see it on, on many different levels. But uh, look, at the, look at the outline that you have right in front of you now from your uh, sermon outline. A grateful heart is a praying heart. And a grateful heart is a remembering heart. And here's where I want to talk to you about heart attitudes about those with whom you live and work and serve in the church. He says, I give thanks constantly. I, you know, I love doing word studies. Some of you could care less, but I love doing word studies because they're, they're so descriptive. That word constantly, do you know what it comes from? It comes from a Greek word that means cough. <coughs> it means to have a tickle. Now, I know that sometimes in this service, there have been some people that have had a tickle. Doesn't that drive you crazy? You're trying to suppress it. <coughs> And, and you start coughing and coughing, and you can't quit coughing. And so you have to leave the room and try to get a drink, and you come back, and it doesn't work. So, hey, do you have a mint? All the rest of that. But this is the picture of what Paul says when he's praying. I it's like a tickle in my throat. It's like a tickle in my heart and my head. I constantly have you on my heart, church. And the thing that I'm praying about is I'm grateful. I am grateful for you. You know, if somebody, let me just ask you this, this, this is always applicatory, I hope, but if someone followed you around with a tape recorder from the moment you awakened to the moment you went to bed, on an average day, would they, from that tape recording, say you are a grateful person? Would they say you're a person who sees the glass Half full or perhaps half empty? Do you look for good things that mark the lives of others? Now, this is important not, not only in the church, but it's important for those of us in the family. And there are people in this church building right now who have grown up with people around them who saw their glass half empty. And that's all they heard was how they could have done better or how they didn't measure up or, or, or any number of things. You, you get what I'm saying. Paul had a grateful heart and he had a remembering heart. Now, he re his memory, three weeks with the Thessalonians. 
but he remembered what Timothy brought back to him. And it was significant. Now, let me just show you a couple of verses. You can jot these verses down and go back. I love to do cross-references as we go through a study of words like this. So this is an encouragement for those of us who minister. Now, again, you may be saying, okay, pastor, that's for you. This is the words of, of, a, of a prophet named Samuel. Boy, they are, they are really striking words. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord. Not sin against you, but sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That ought to be the attitude of every pastor, of every elder, of every dad, of every mom, of every grandparent for their grandchildren. You get the idea, don't you? Don't let me sin against you, Lord, by dropping that out of my life, my prayer life, specifically, by name, for my kids and for my grandkids and, and for my parents who are still alive and for my brothers and my sisters and my cousins who don't know you. Not praying for them over a period of time is not just failing them, folks. It's sinning against the Lord. Now, you put that into your hopper and you let it come out however it will. I'm not here to guilt you, but to encourage you as a follower of Christ, as a minister, a fellow minister. This is quickened in my heart. Some things that I need to do even better and even more. Okay? Then from the New Testament, 1 Timothy, look at this. And, and this, this gets out even beyond the walls of the church and your family and all the rest. First of all, he says, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, just every kind of asking for and thanking and all the rest of that, thanksgiving, be made for all people, all kinds of people. And then he lists kings. Well, we don't have a king in this country, but we have a president and a vice president. And we have... Congress and we have all of those leaders for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way whenever things happen on the outside sometimes I ask myself am I praying for my leaders as I should could, could that be a reason things are like they are could it be that Christians are praying and thank God things are not worse? There are not four or five countries springing up instead of one. Paul was constant in his prayer. And that picture is absolutely key. Now, one more verse that I'll say to you in a time of great anxiety, no matter what it has to do with. By the way, we move, those of you who are old enough know that we will always be moving, we've just moved in quick succession from one crisis to another, whether it is in your immediate life, like with your health, or a loved one's health, or a marital situation, or, and again, I, I, you always need to look at these in concentric circles, or what is going on, we always are moving from one crisis to another. So that causes anxiety, and yet, what's the answer? What's the answer for anxiety? Not for people out there, but for us. People out there are not going to see it. If you're anxious, there is a solution. It's the solution that, that Paul brings up in this first point. Don't be anxious about anything 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and what will be the outcome of that the peace of God not the not the deliverance from the situation necessarily but the peace of God which surpasses all understanding I shared with you last week that this is a favorite verse for preachers to use at funerals praying for families and they need it I mean come on that, that's the ultimate anxiety the, the loss of a loved one but the peace of God, remember what we said? Does anybody remember what we said? Where does the peace of God come from? It comes first from peace with God. And that's always the first thing to settle in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Several quotes, George Mueller, who was a man known for his prayer life, he said the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. If it's the end of faith, it's probably the end of prayer. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Great quote from a great man of prayer. Okay? All right, let's look at the marks of grace. So that's the, basically, that's the overview, praying people. We just, we just need to be praying people. No, it's not guilting. It, it, this is an organic thing. This is part of who you are. And if you're a Christian, this bears witness with you that the life of prayer is a constant thing and you remember people that you love and you pray for them, okay? So what were the three marks of grace? And these are, I, I just, it's stunning. Paul's use, again, I told you I love to, to dig in here and, and look at some of the words and Paul's use of words is stunning. Have you ever heard the quote by Mark Twain, who was not a Christian? This is not a Christian quote. It's a great quote anyway. He said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is a large matter. It's like the difference between a lightning bug and lightning. Okay, so Paul, he, he strikes with lightning in the use of his words. There are three different things that he talks about that he sees. Marks of grace in this young church called the, thirst, the, the church at Thessalonica. So you see it there. Uh, 3B, grateful for true salvation that's revealed in three ways. Let's look at these three quickly, but meaningfully. He says, first of all, your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, three different things in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does this grow out of? We talked about this in our ABF class. I'm so glad that we were able to be back in ABF, and it was a small group, but really good stuff. And, 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 and you know, we one of the things that was talked about was we just don't want to live life as Christians with a checkbox. And you just go through the program. You just do all the... It's, it's a living relationship. It's organic. It's a new birth kind of thing. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. As, and, and as a new creation, all things have passed away. It happened to the Thessalonians. We're going to see next week, Lord willing, that they... Listen, after three weeks, left idolatry. We'll define that a little bit better. To follow Christ, that is stunning. Why did they do it? Because Paul said, this is what Baptists do. No! He knew that if they were truly saved, that they were new creations. There was a new source of their life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. 
It's not like taking an apple tree and hanging oranges on it. It's changing the apple tree so it becomes an orange tree. And it bears oranges because that's what it is. It's a new creation. That's what he's talking about. The new has come. And so as a part of the new, he said those three things. A thorough transformation of heart that is still in process. And it produces fruit in three areas. Okay. Let's go on. A life that works. That's what I'm calling a work of faith. It's a life, excuse me, a faith that works. And that's essentially, you could read it a couple of different ways. But it's essentially saying that one of the marks of grace, check yourself, please. One of the marks of grace that you ought to see, or maybe you don't see it because sometimes we are so conscious and aware of our sin that we don't even see the marks of grace that others see. So ask people around you to say, do you see a mark of grace, a faith that works in me? James talked about faith. He said, if you're going to ask, going back to the prayer, ask in faith, no doubting. Because if you, if you doubt, you'll be like the guy on the ocean. He's, he's just tossed, tossed around uh, by the waves and, and, and the wind. Now, here, here is, we, we could talk a lot about faith, and we're, we're going to talk a little about faith. But basically, here's what I see, and I've tried to communicate this to you all the way along. I've tried. Uh, is that in every situation, whatever it is, you always start, listen, not with the situation. You start with God. If you don't, you're dead in the water. You start with God. Well, what do you believe about God? I believe that God is God. He's sovereign. He has a plan and a purpose and the power to pull off whatever he plans to do. He has a purpose in everything. So I believe that God is God and I believe God is good. And I may not be able to see his goodness at all times in all situations right now. But you start with faith. With no doubting, that's your starting point always about God. Now, something else very, very important to remember about this. This is not a faith, listen, produced by works. You don't drum up this faith, okay? But faith, true saving faith, works. The Greek word is ergon, E-R-G-O-N transliterated all right does that sound like a word in our English language how about the word energy so here's what he's saying if, if you're a born-again believer and he's, he's saying this about the church at Thessalonica I see this mark of grace in you you've got faith you've got a faith even though it's under attack and you can read on in Acts chapter 17 and he mentions it all the way through first Thessalonians You've got a faith in God, that he is God, that he has a plan in your suffering, in your affliction. And out of that grows works. Now that word works, energy, here's the basic definition. Business, employment, occupation. Let me give you another word, lifestyle. It's how you operate in a general sense as a Christian. Remember, you're a new creation in Christ. You've got a new energy source, right? Ergon. You've got a new occupation. You've got a new work ethic. 
And so when he talks about Esau in this church, their work of faith, he's talking about a change in their whole life. Their whole occupation became a life of good works. And he says in another place, this puts works into its proper perspective, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing. What's not your own doing? Well, is it grace? Is it having been saved? Is it faith? And the answer is yes. It's all three. This is not your own doing. All of this is the gift of God, not as a result of works. We just said that, that no man may boast. But a lot of times people memorize that and they don't memorize verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Another way to say that is what? New creation in Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for what? Go, go ahead and say it with me. Good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So this is your new creation life. This is the overview of your life. This is your new vocation. So you become a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer of Jesus Christ, and for the rest of your life, you desire, you launch out to live a life of good works versus dead or fleshly works. Paul would say to the Colossians, he's delivered me from one place to the other, from the kingdom of darkness, he's transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. And this transfer is a transfer of allegiance and base of operations and I used the word a minute ago. Did you pick up on it? Do, do you live it out? If, if you're a Christian, your whole life is a life of desire to, to do good works. But it's a life of warfare, as Paul said in another place. And that's why he said, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So Paul said to the Thessalonians, I, and I say to you, I am so grateful for your faith, the faith that God has worked in you, that I see all across this congregation in little untold ways that nobody knows but God. And do you know what? That's all right. I got a note this last week from a prisoner I have no idea who this person is other than they signed their name. But one of the, this prisoner was thinking me. I thought, I didn't do anything. But I'll tell you who did. A little group of people that meet back here, and during this whole thing of the shutdown, they just continued to, to, to meet in homes and things like that and send these study guides, the gospel study guides, to these prisoners. And I got a, a, a note from one of those prisoners saying, thank you for your church being faithful during this time when nobody else would do that. You did it. And that's just one little example. And it, it just happens all over. And I am so grateful for the work of faith. Now he moves on. Second thing he thinks... God for and the oh by the way faith rests on the past faith always rests on the past a crucified savior what's that called 
the big theological word, justification. Okay, you got it, justification. Faith rests on the past. Now, let's move on to the second thing, labor of love. Again, Paul used a very specific word. You say, well, labor, that's work, isn't it? Faith produces work, so love produces labor. Well, it's not exactly, it's, the word there is a totally different word than ergon or energy. I, I know you probably don't care, and I can't pronounce it correctly, but the Greek word is kopos or something like that. And what this word does is narrow the focus, okay? You've got the general, you've been born again for a life of good works. That's your new creation lifestyle. If it isn't, go back and look at what transpired when you said you believed in Christ. Maybe you believed in some good things, but not in Christ, and you weren't truly born again. But this is different. This is a different thing. This is a love that labors. That word kopos literally, literally means a beating. It means intense labor accompanied by trouble, difficulty, fatigue that reduces your strength. In other words, it's work that wears you out. So if works, a faith that works, is the general war, then the labor of love are the individual battles on a daily basis. Has anybody ever watched the show Dirty Jobs? Micro, I, I really like Micro. He he's, uh, seems like a good guy, hardworking guy, dirty jobs. And I was thinking about this when, when this word came up. And so I want to ask you, and I don't know that you will, will want to shout out the answer. I was thinking for myself, what is the hardest job that you ever had? One that... Okay, the word is a beating with trouble, difficulty, fatigue that reduces your strength that wears you out. What's the hardest job you ever had? I was, I was thinking back to my teenage years and there were, okay, now parents, I want you to discuss this with your children so that you get an idea of what their hardest job has been in life. And, and don't laugh. You be very, very serious with them. And, and, and then just sometime remind them that it's probably, there will come a time when it's, there's going to be a job that's tougher. But I, I tell you, with everything that I've done in life, I think the hardest job I ever had was in my junior year in the summertime, and a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to help him bale hay. I was in athletics, shouldn't have been, <laughs> but I was. And so I thought, well, this will get me in good shape, and I'll work without a shirt, so I'll get a good tan. And who laughed? <laughs> Lauren? Okay. That's the way juniors think. Okay, I, I, so I, I was, man, I'm all over this. Now, what, technically it wasn't baling hay. The hay had already been baled. We were just going to throw it up on the truck. No problem, except those bales weighed. I don't know. What's a bale of hay weigh? 50, 80 pounds for those of you who've done it. So the first couple, like that, get around the truck. The next one, <laughs> up here, 
And I'm telling you what, by 5 o'clock, I, I could not believe how dirty and filthy. I couldn't get a suntan because of all the dirt that was all over me from the hay. Tossing it up four or five bales high, that absolutely. And I'm talking about, some of you remember back, but, but see, that's what... That's the picture of this. What does that have to do with love? Because sometimes a labor of love is just that. It's hard work that wears you out. If playing football is the whole life is the war, then two-a-days is the labor. If being in the band is... The whole, the whole thing, then practicing every day, every day when your lips are sore or your fingers are sore or whatever else, that's the labor. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to be fit, healthy, that, that's, that's the general outline. But when Monday morning rolls around and that alarm clock goes off, and you think, I do not want to get up and work out. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul differentiates. He said, church, I see that you've got a work of faith. This is your general lifestyle. It's, it's committed to good works, but not only that, your lifelong commitment to good works. But I see you involved in the trenches, in the daily battles with the world, with the flesh, with the devil. It's not the general commitment. Listen, it's not the general commitment that's going to wear you down. It's the daily battle. And remember, he's talking to ministers. He, he's talking to pastors. They want to just say, I, it's all in vain. I'm going to throw in the towel. He's talking to husbands and wives. They say, yeah, I, I've, I've worked at it. it it's, not, it, it's not going to work out. So I'm, I'm No. And, and that's where you get worn down. That's hard work. The toughest job you will ever have is not bailing hay. It's going to be in any number of things. When we say love, a warm, fuzzy, sentimental feeling that the world calls love is not going to cut it. It will not see you through. It's love that works, love that labors, love that is committed. When Jan and I were first, it happened really on, on the front end of our marriage far more than on the back end. We still have disagreements, don't we, honey? Where she usually says, you have your right to be wrong, yeah. Uh, but, but I, I remember at times, I mean, you, you know, we came from different backgrounds. She was rich, I was poor. Now, relatively speaking. You know, so we saw, we saw money a different way. I was a, I was a fire-breathing Calvinist. She was a Methodist, a Wesleyan-Armenian. Boy, do we have disagreements about that. I could just go down the list with all of these kinds of things. But here's what would happen normally, normally. We would be disagreeing about something, hopefully civilly, but then at the end of the day, here's, here's, here's what we normally, we would say, we're not gonna solve this right now. 
but we're committed for the long haul. So let's go to bed, make sure we're not mad, angry, and let's work on it tomorrow and then the next day. Or maybe it'll, maybe it'll keep till next week or maybe next month. What sustains this work? It's motivated and sustained by agape love. I, I, I just, I thought of this, I thought of any place in the Bible that demonstrates this. It's the story of, of, of Jacob and Rachel. You, you remember that story? Just a brief outline. Jacob goes and he works for Laban, his, his uncle, and he, he, he's in love with Rachel. And so I, I, I'm going to work seven years for her. So he gets married and whoops, Laban does a quick one on him and he marries Leah, Rachel's wife. And so he says, well, okay, I'll let you have Rachel, but you got to work another seven years. Now, what would you do in a case like that? Forget it, I'm out of here. That's hard work. But here was the attitude, and I see this, that God posited in this a picture of how love, agape love, motivates. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Love that works in the present is due to a crowned Savior, not a crucified Savior in this case. This is the work of sanctification in us. And this is what Paul was so grateful for. Okay, last one. At least the last of the three marks. A hope that endures. Now contrast that with hopelessness. A hope that endures. Several people in the Bible came close to hopelessness. Job, David, Jeremiah, Paul. By the way, I, I said this, uh, it's been a good while back, and it's, it's one of the most misread verses, I think, in, uh, in 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But will God ever give you more than you can handle? And the answer is yes. And the reason why he does that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Look, I was at the point of death in my despair, but here's what it did. It taught me that I was not to rely upon myself, but on God, who even raises the dead. Now, folks, let me just say this as a church. I really believe that you and I are in the hope business. But there is no hope separated from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, if you look down, if you're still open to, to, to First Thess, haven't lost your place, he says to wait from his son from heaven, to long from. This is more than, than just a passive patience. This is a steadfast abiding under pressure because hope is not grounded in circumstances. The Thessalonians had suffering, so did the Romans. Now, now look at this. How do we get that? How do we develop that and strengthen it? We rejoice in our sufferings because sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hebrews says that we've received this kingdom, and it's a kingdom of hope that cannot be shaken. No matter what is going on around us. So hope looks to the future, a coming Savior, and that'll be our glorification. Let's finish these last two verses, can we? Are you still with me? Do I need to wait till next week? No, okay, good, good, because it's only 1130. 
Jonathan gave me plenty of time. Okay, here we go. Two things real quickly. Verse 4, grateful for a true salvation that grows out of being loved. You probably knew that I would love to get to this verse. That grows out of being loved and chosen by God. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. I am not going to get into the debate about God's sovereignty in election. But what I will say is this. God's sovereignty in election, choosing us, which you can't doubt because it's there. It's never, please hear me, it's never divorced from our responsibility to obey. And so one way you can, you, you can help people out is when people start debating with you about, do you believe in God's choice or man's choice? Let's talk ab about it in terms of this, God's choice and man's responsibility to obey him. What is our necessary obedience to God's command to repent and obey the gospel? And, and Paul says, we, I knew this, knowing, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How did he know? Was he able to somehow get a hold of the, a copy of the Lamb's Book of Life and look into it? I don't think so. But he was able to see their unconditional love for others and the other marks of grace. Let me just give you two verses that have helped me in this whole difficult scenario of God's sovereign election, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And then this verse has been very helpful. Some people say it's a cop-out. I don't think any verse in the Bible can be a cop-out. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Here it is. Just what I said a minute ago. God's sovereignty and election, our responsibility. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We can't pull back the veil and get into the Lamb's Book of Life to discover whose name is written and whose name is not written. Those are the secret things of the Lord our God. But there are things that he has revealed to us. What does he reveal to us? To repent, to believe, and to obey, and to serve him. You know, when I was first studying the doctrines of grace, the, these, these wonderful doctrines about God choosing us, it, it was... I would look at that Deuteronomy verse, but I'll tell you what it did for me. I would be studying it. I, I would stop and say, you chose me? I knew what I was. And I would, literally, I would be so overwhelmed by God's choice of, of, of me for salvation that I would get up from my chair and lay face down on the floor and Thank him and praise him. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Last verse. Grateful for a true salvation that receives the gospel in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. You know, all of this is anchored in the word. And the word here is equivalent with the gospel, the power, Paul says in Romans, of the gospel to transform, the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and give us the full assurance of our birthright. 
So here's, here's what I would say to you. You act on what you know and leave the rest to God. I started out this sermon by asking if you've ever been discouraged or felt like that your life was lived in vain. And I'm not talking about tired of being a Christian. I'm talking about just being worn out by the daily battles. Do you feel sometimes that the labor of your life and ministry, like Paul, might be in vain? Let me tell you a story that I came across last week. I had never heard of this guy. His name was Dr. William Leslie. Lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Anybody ever heard of Dr. William Leslie? Never heard this story. It's a great story. And he was a, a pharmacist in Ontario, Canada. In, in 1888, he was converted to faith in Jesus Christ. He became an ardent follower of Christ, moved to the United States, and then became a medical missionary. Now remember, he was saved at 47. Became a missionary, moved to Africa to, to minister in that nation, became deathly ill. His whole story is just a picture of all kinds of trials and setbacks and things like that. But when he got sick, this was a bright spot, a young nurse, missionary, by the name of Clara Hill, nursed him back to health. They got married, and they had a family that lived on the mission field. And he worked 33 years on the, on the, on the mission field, raised his family there. Now, for the last 17 years of his ministry life, he went to a remote place called Venga, cleared that base of operations out of the jungle, and for 17 years went into the jungles around him. And there were ups and downs. I mean, there were snakes and leopard attacks and unfriendly Indians and all the rest of, of that. And so he returned to the United States 17 years after he had gone there, discouraged, believing that all of his ministry had been a failure. And he died six years later. And for he was 67 years old, by the way, when he died. For 75 years, time went by, and a group of researchers went back to that area. They hoped that they would at least find maybe some evidence of people knowing about Christ, perhaps, maybe. But they made the arduous trip back on that river, and what they found was a network of churches. I, I, I've got a quote that they said, these guys, the researchers. This was in 2010, 75 years after that man returned to the United States, believing that he had failed. They wrote, we found a network of reproducing churches, hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle across the Kuala River from Vanga, where Dr. Leslie was stationed. 
In every village, there was a vibrant church. And in fact, back in the 80s, there was a mega church. A thousand people attended it. And when it got, they ran out of space, they said, we're going to plant churches. And they started planting churches all over the area. And people continued to come. God sees, maybe if man doesn't, Paul saw it in the lives of these believers. He sees your commitment, your, your work of faith. He sees your labor of love. And he sees your endurance of hope. And I, I just want to say to you today that your life is not in vain if that's how he has led you to live. Paul said it like this to the Corinthian church, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, please, Help these, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, both those are, that are part of our church family, those who are visiting today from other churches, to see this, that no matter where they are, no matter what, where God has planted them, that they are called to these marks of grace growing out of the new birth, the new creation that you have created us to be. And so I pray that we would be reminded again of that commitment to a lifestyle of works, good works to which you've called us, growing out of our faith, to labor, to the toil, to the roll up our sleeves and get down and dirty in the trenches that grows out of love, agape love, for those in our families and those around us, for those in our church, for those in our job and culture. And Father, then a steadfastness of endurance that whatever we've done, our labor has not been and it will not be in vain. And God, this is such good news for those of us who know you and love you. Uh, and, and I pray that if there's anyone here, young or old, who does not know you, that they would be so stirred by the incredible nature of the good news and they would Compare it like the Thessalonians did with the emptiness of idols that offer nothing in life or in death. And that those people would run to Christ and to the gospel that Christ died for sinners like us. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming again. So Lord, thank you that now we close our time with an affirmation in song and in word. And I pray that you would seal these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.